Welcome to season two of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. Two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs. In this show, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis with my co-host, Ben Pronk. G'day, Tim. G'day, Ben. Hey, I was trying to start something the other day by saying this is the Unforgiving 60. Mm-hmm. Didn't, didn't rate it? But you're trying to start something the other day, that red Mustang of yours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which has yeah. been in the shop. It's good. It's come out humming. It's a lot of complicated parts on it. Very, very complicated, but not complex, which brings us to today's very special guest. Now, listeners would have heard us quote David Snowden extensively. I um, was first introduced to David when I was still in uniform. He was kind enough to come out uh, to the SAS regiment and talk a bit about complex thinking, complex adaptive systems, how that pertains to uh, a conflict environment, in that case Afghanistan. And uh, it's probably not too dramatic to say it was life-changing for me in terms of how I view the world and make sense of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, we've, we've certainly used his um, his material, particularly his Kinevan framework, in um, a lot of the workshops we do and, and certainly in the discussions within the Unforgiving 60 podcast today. And on the COVID-19 issue, we've used it extensively in, yeah. in assisting some of our clients understand what is this weird environment that we're confronted with where there seems to be no right decision that I can make. Yeah, yeah. And we get a lot of mileage out of fighter jets and rainforests, which is Oof. another of his great uh, metaphors for, for making sense or, or understanding the different natures of the environment that we as humans, but also in particular as leaders, are confronted with. I believe that a social scientist would love art and poetry and think that that's critical to anything relating to science. Yeah, and not just critical, but but fundamental, that Mm. um, without art there can be no scientific innovation, says David. Well, let's get on with the show. Okay, well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Unforgiving 60. I'm Ben Pronk, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Tim Curtis. G'day, Ben. And Tim and I are joined today by Dave Snowden, who we're very fortunate to have on the show. Um, Most of our listeners will recall that we have quoted or probably misquoted a lot of Dave's stuff over the, the years. But Dave, how are you? I'm really good, thanks. Good to speak to you. And you. Now, we were just catching up before you and I first met in Swanbourne in about, I think it was 2008, when you were kind enough to come and visit the unit, talk about complexity theory and its application to places like uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. And then again, a couple of years later in the UK, uh, where again, you were kind enough to take some time to speak to me about a, um, a research project I was doing. So it's really good to catch up. Now, I mentioned before that we've um, spoken about the Kinevan framework on the show before, but it would be really cool if you were able to to start by uh, providing a a bit of an overview of the framework for our listeners. Okay. Uh, Kinevan has evolved over about 20 plus years. 
Um, we're actually coming up to a key anniversary this year in the first five domain version of it as published in 1999 in October. So we're planning some stuff around that. Right. So it's kind of like stood the test of time and got a lot of citations. Um, the thing I'm most proud about on it though is it's been used operationally um, to actually make a difference. For example, uh, police actions in Florida and elsewhere where they've realized that a situation is complex. So they pulled back and, and taken a more experimental approach. Either way, to give you the high level picture, Kinevin identifies five domains or types of system in which you have to act in different ways. Um, the first is where the relationship between cause and effect is clear and self-evident. Uh, so in Australia and Britain, we drive on the left. In France and Germany, they drive on the right. Um, it's a simple categorization problem. Where am I? Is it one of the countries that drive on the left? If it is, then I'll do the same thing. So the cause and effect relationship is clear. Everybody buys into it. And so I can apply best practice. I can have one standard way of doing things. You then have the complicated domain where the there is a linear relationship between cause and effect, but it's not self-evident to the decision maker. It may actually be self-evident to experts. So here I have to do some sort of analysis or bring in expertise. I can't just simply categorize. And generally, there'll be more than one option. There'll be varieties. People can do things in slightly different ways. And you see this, for example, with surgeons in hospitals. They have different strategies. And often it can result in, in different methods. But overall, they know what they're doing. And that's kind of like called good practice. You then get the complex domain. And this comes from complex adaptive systems. And the critical thing to understand about a complex system is that everything is entangled. Uh, Alicia Gerraro uses a lovely metaphor here of a complex system is like bramble bushes in a thicket. Everything is intertwined with everything else. You know that things are separate, but you can't separate them. And as a result of all those multiple interthreaded connections, the system has no causality, and that's the scary thing about them. Um, but they do have dispositions or probabilities of change, which we can measure. And they also have propensities and particular constraints, which are stable aspects of the system, which we can manage. And then we have the chaotic system. Now, there's no agreement in the literature on this. So I use chaos to mean quasi-random. There are no effective constraints. And if that happens catastrophically, um, it happens suddenly without expectation. It's a disaster. The early stages of COVID are a good example of mm. that. But we quite, quite very quickly move to stabilize it. Um, and we do that normally by the imposition of draconian constraints. And there are various exits on that, but the clever one is to actually shift it into the central domain of Kinevin, uh, known as shorthand as AC which is not a reference to 1970s pop groups or to electrical current, but to two key states. One is apparatic and one is confused. Or if you don't want to use the academic language, one of which is unaware of the confusion and the other is I'm confused but not aware of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, now, the key thing here is to be in the apparatic or aware domain. And apparatic means a state of puzzlement. It's known puzzlement. It's the known unknowns. You know, I know I don't know, and I'm aware of that. Therefore, mm -hmm. I can take different actions to exit. Yeah. 
And there's a whole body of material on that I've written up, which is actually in the coming EU hand field book on crisis management. But the basic principle of Kinevin is there are five domains, there are shifts and moves between domains. There are liminal aspects to each domain where you are in a state of suspended transition before you move to the other one. But the main goal of it in decision support is to say different things work in different spaces. And one of the drivers for it for me was I got totally fed up after decades of general management and C-level work of management fads, of people rolling through a new idea and claiming it was universal uh, because the old idea had failed. And in reality, the old idea had worked really well. We'd just taken it a bit too far and we needed to realize that boundary and do something different on the other side. And that's a key Kinevin principle. It's called bounded applicability. So that's a high level summary. And in your discussion on complex environments, you recommend a, a sort of sense-making framework of um, probe sense respond. Um, can you talk to that in a managerial sense, a leadership sense? How should we be uh, framing yeah. our interventions? It's critical to understand it's parallel probes rather than single probes. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you've been C-level, one of the things you constantly face is a whole bunch of people come into your office. You've got an intractable problem. I tend to use intractable rather than wicked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, you've got an intractable problem. There's no obvious solution. And five or six different people, your reportees, have got highly credible hypotheses and proposals about what should happen. And you can't resolve who's right on an evidence base within the time frame that you've got to make a decision. Now, that's actually a heuristic which defines a situation as complex. So instead of sort of making a guess or a bet, and you'll normally go with the person who was most successful last time, hmm. and that's actually bad use of practice. What you actually do is you allow each of the people with a coherent hypothesis, they've got to be coherent to some sort of facts, to run a very short cycle, safe to fail experiment to see if their idea works or not. So if you've got five short cycle experiments, generally they'll all fail in different ways, but they'll change the space so you can see what to do. And that's kind of like a different approach. We've got forms for this, you know. It's kind of like, okay, here's the problem. These aspects are clear. Why the hell haven't you already done it? These are complicated. Who's going to investigate it? When will they report? What resources do they need? Okay, it's it's complex. Which are the coherent hypotheses? What's the time cycle for the experiments? Who's responsible for each? When will I look at the results? And that, that makes life a lot easier for an executive. And I imagine a big part of that will be understanding what we're actually looking for, what data we're trying to collect from each of these um, safe-to-fail experiments. Yeah, it, actually, no, not really. I mean, that's a possible side effect. But what the experiments do is they change the nature of the system. So in a complex system, everything you do changes the system. So you've got no separation between mm. research and action. So everything you do to investigate the problem needs to be constructed on the basis it's an intervention and vice versa. So the reason you do these things in parallel is the system responds to the different experiments and stable patterns that you can pick up then become visible. 
And this is in line with, I've, I've heard you speak before about rather than trying to define a utopian future and working towards that, uh, get into the habit of understanding the present and, and looking at nudges in the right direction? Yeah, and I think that's a key, key complexity principle. It's one of the big differences between complexity and all the popular forms of systems thinking. Is for the past 30 or 40 years, which have been dominated by systems thinking, the overall method has been to define an ideal future and try and close the gap. Now, a priori, if the system is complex, you can't do that because the future is unknowable because of the level of interaction and entanglement. Mm. So it becomes more important to map the present and identify what's called adjacent possible stepping stones, so things that you can shift to, which start to shift or change the dynamics of the system so it produces better rather than worse results. And one of the ways I phrase that is you start journeys, you don't try and achieve goals. But you start the journeys with a sense of direction, which keeps you open to novelty of discovery on the pathway. Whereas if you have very specific goals, you won't get there. In fact, they'll corrupt the system. And that's also the essence of this alternative approach to the behavioral economists. Mm -hmm. I often say, don't nudge, they yank. <laughs> they decide where you want to be and they try and manipulate you. Right? And that's increasingly becoming exposed and challenged. Wonderful book called um, Neuroliberalism from colleagues of mine at Aberystwyth on this. Um, what we do is we measure when the system is ready to be nudged and then we get it to nudge itself. And that's by shifting it to what's called an adjacent possible or one of these stepping stones which are mapped. So the critical thing in complexity is to know where the hell you are um, and to know what rough direction you want to go in, but not make that too specific because it may not be the right goal anyway. And as you said before, the, the second, it's the Heraclitian thing, the, the man can't step in the same river twice as yeah. soon as you interact. It, it's a different environment. Yeah, or in the modern world, Heisenberg, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, uncertainty principle. So the things we can control in a complex adaptive system are pretty limited. I've heard you speak before that um, we can, to some extent, control the boundaries, the probes, and the amplification strategies. Can you talk more about using those kind of levers to try and get that nudge rather than the yank? Yeah, I think um, there are various things you can manage in a complex adaptive system. Probably the most critical um, there are three critical ones. One is the constraints, um, the other is the probes, and the other is the energy allocation. So constraint mapping is a key management skill. Um, and this is not the same thing as theory of constraints. So manufacturing systems thinking, and TOC is probably the exemplar of that, has tended to see constraints as things that you remove in order to allow better flow. Um, and that's also true of many constraints within complexity, but complexity takes more of an ecological metaphor and basically talks about what are called enabling constraints. And, and without some type of constraint, evolution just isn't possible. Hmm. So I often say enabling constraints are generally things that connect or give a sense of direction, whereas governing or fixed constraints seek to control or restrict movement. So there's a whole process on that. We have typologies of constraints, so they can be internal or external, you know, like an endo or an exoskeleton. They can be resilient or robust. Um, they can be fixed, yeah. Um, there's, a whole there's a whole mapping technique here. 
And the key thing when you look at a complex system is to start to say, well, which of these constraints, you ask yourself three basic questions. Uh, which of these can I change? Out of the ones that I can change, where can I monitor the impact of change? Because change without monitoring is just stupid. <laughs> now, to the ones where I can monitor the impact of change, where could I rapidly amplify success um, or disrupt or mitigate the consequences of failure? And that's one of the ways you generate the safe-to-fail experiment. So the way you may describe it is if we make that fixed constraint permeable, let's see what happens. Because you can always make, you can always reduce the permeability. Mm-hmm. if you need to later and kind of like recover. So that's the, the constraints are a type of propensity. The experiments, i.e. that's kind of like probes, the parallel probes we just talked about. And then this very rapid reallocation of resources um, to things which are starting to change the system in a beneficial way and withdrawal of resources from things which are doing the opposite is, is key. And those are basically the three things you can manage. So life becomes a lot easier once you understand this. And the creation of negative boundaries, you've spoken before about that as being a yeah. way of, yeah. I think the key thing here is kind of like, um, I mean, we all tell our children stories. Um, and we don't tell our children stories about how Janet and John stayed at home, achieved the family KPIs and did what mummy and daddy said, right? Uh, we tell our stories you know, Janet and John went into the woods against mummies and daddy's advice and met witches and warlocks and wolves and other strange beasts. <laughs> and we make sure there's a happy ending because we want them to sleep, but most of the story is failure. And that's true of all the storytelling traditions I've discovered, including the more, you know, Aboriginal stories in Australia, which are very different from Middle East stories, from Western stories, which are the three main types. But they all teach through failure, not through success. So one of the ways you set a sense of direction is to agree what we don't want to do, but don't talk too much about what we do want to do. Um, because that channels the system, but leaves multiple options open. And it's far easier to get consensus in that way. The other link thing on this, which we do quite a lot of, which is commander's intent, which is using metaphorical situations with counterfactuals. Um, to give a sense of direction, which is narrative-based, not goal-based. Yeah, and that's actually quite fascinating when you see it in operation. We started that with U.S. military, and we're now moving that across into industry. Can you expand on the that metaphorical examples with counterfactuals? What what sort of examples of that? Okay, have I'll, you I'll give you my favourite example. All right. Um, when I first started work on DARPA, which was kind of like weird, you know, I, I ended up mm. working on counterterrorism for years <laughs> yeah, uh, with Poindexter and others. And the first time I went down for the first project meeting, they asked me what I knew about the Civil War. So I was in a fairly wicked mood at the moment at that time. Mm. So I said, do you mean Stephen and Matilda or Charles and Cromwell? And they looked at me with this expression of horror because, of course, they meant the American Civil War <laughs> because that's the defining moment in American history. So thereafter, every meeting was held on a different Civil War battlefield. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And actually last year in November, I actually led a walk of two Civil War battlefields with two local experts. And I'm quite pleased. I knew more about Gettysburg than they did. So that was good news. Right? Um, that was with a thing we were doing with the US Marines. But if you go into Gettysburg, it's a key battle in the Civil War. It's the first time the South go north and they, they cross the border. And it's an accidental battle, not a deliberate battle. 
Um, if it had been deliberate, then Lee would have won it. He'd won all the previous battles. Chancellorville was the previous one. Um, but they, the two, and actually, to be honest, McClellan would have run because he was avoiding an encounter with Lee. Um, but the two armies coincide by accident at um, Gettysburg. You know, the first day is inconclusive. Second day, Lee realizes the strategic significance of a hill called Little Round Top. And so he sends a regiment up to capture it. At the same time, a guy called Chamberlain, who's emergency trained in the Midwest, realizes the significance at the same time and gets a troop up to the top there and defends it. And it's the only example of the North winning a bayonet charge. It's quite, you know, when you go there, it's quite amazing. Mm. Now, if that hadn't been the case, all right, if it hadn't been for Chamberlain, the South would have conquered that hill. They'd have had a commanding field of fire over the whole army of the Pontiac and the reserves. You know, not only would have that battle been over, but the war would have been over because Lincoln would have lost the election, which was McClellan's strategy. Everything would have changed. So it's a key turning point in history. And it's worth doing the Gettysburg Walk to see it. So if I say little round top, no Chamberlain, do you see what I'm doing? Yeah. Yep. In four words, I'm conveying a highly complex strategic situation, but I'm adding a counterfactual to make you think. So the way you do commander's intent or leader's intent now is you identify seminal moments in the history of the organization, which everybody understands. You construct them as a taught history, introduce counterfactual points. And then you've got an extremely effective way of conveying direction, but leaving necessary ambiguity in place. Which gives and, and sort of links into this modern military concept of mission command or the, the sort of Ustag yeah. tactic. You know, going yeah, back the guy to who wrote Mission Wars, Command is, is the guy that we, we both co-led a walk around the battlefields together. Is that right? So I'm not the Mission Command guys, yeah. I was with them in um, Quantico. We were actually looking at integration of Kenevin with the OODA loop. Hmm. And we were in with the original Boyd Archives in the Marines University. From, so from that, your... that was that occasion. Sorry, I was just going to ask, from your perspective as a, I guess, a non-uniform uh, advisor in those environments... Are contemporary Western militaries, we talk a lot about mission command, are we doing it well? I think I've got a lot of respect for the Marines and I've got a lot of respect for American generals because they're happy to admit when they're wrong, um, which is not a phenomenon I see much in British armed forces. Yeah. Mm. Um, I think, yes, I think that there's areas we don't fully understand, which is small group command. Now, whereas special forces get that, um, you're now starting to see it in regular army units. So effectively, lance corporals may have to make decisions which have consequences for world politics. And that's going to get worse, not better, because the chance of armies not getting involved in civil contingency control is non-existent. Hmm. And so we're not really thinking about distributed small group command because you can't have everybody in special forces. Yeah, You've got to have that in regular army as well. Yeah. And so we're talking about this phenomenon of the strategic corporal, and I'd argue we're seeing the strategic constable playing out in uh, police actions across the world, yeah. but in particular in the US at the moment. Same sort of principle applied. Like, How would you, as a hypothetical police chief in a rioting US state, how would you be approaching the situation through <laughs> Kinevan lens? First of all, I mean, Kinevan is being used and it's taught 
um, on homeland defense across the US. Um, and it's also taught in the army, you don't get to be a colonel without understanding Kinevin. Um, I think the key thing is, is this concept of um, if the situation is complex, you do experimental probes, which increase your resilience. You don't go in with overwhelming force. Yeah? Mm. Um, and also you need to diffuse tension very quickly. And that there are techniques for that. I mean, one of the things, for example, the British Army learned in Northern Ireland is you don't, your initial roadblock is not full of people with full armor and heavy helmets and massive machine guns is that will scare the shit out of somebody who's driving up to it and they may panic and drive through your barrier mm. and you end up killing somebody you shouldn't kill. Yeah, so one of the things the British Army did is put soft forces in the front with successive levels of increasing you know, lethality as you went through. So if people broke, then there were ways to stop it. And I think that's one of the issues. And I think if you actually look at the current riots, the protective equipment for the police is a problem. Yeah. And of course, there's this massive problem allowing allowing all police officers to carry guns. I mean, that that's lethal in its own right. And somebody's got to address that at some stage. And we're actually starting to look at this at the moment. So connecting three key things, which is the COVID crisis, global warming, and things like Black Lives Matter, because all you know, global warming is a universal. But pandemics and civil unrest around injustice are going to increase. I mean, we, we just know that. So starting to find ways in which people are connecting those together is part of the solution. And it's quite interesting to see some of these moves, like, for example, a New York move to basically withdraw funding if police forces don't find radical new ways of engaging with their communities. And the worry I've got on that is it will go over to military, which would be even worse, or vigilantes. Mm. But wider community engagement and using community leaders is kind of like key on this area in terms of the way it works. Yeah? But you've also got the problem of you know, far-right infiltration. You've got the problem of a huge amount of money coming from people who want to disrupt civil society at the moment, which we haven't had before. You've got the dangers of social media, which is a way of clustering hatred rather than connecting people. Mm. And a friend of mine in the Mounties has got a wonderful phrase for this, or a former Mountie. He said, it used to be that every village had an idiot and it didn't matter because we knew who the idiots were. But now they've banded together on the internet to legitimize idiocy. <laughs> and to which I would add, you know, elect the president of the United States and the prime minister of the UK, which might be slightly more <laughs> controversial, right? Mm. Um, and I mean, I think that's the problem in a hyper-connected world, you get this sort of hyper-localization and it's even more difficult control than it was historically. Mm. And I think we need far more maturity within command and we need to find ways to distribute command by cross-validation. We, for example, in COVID are using trios, which means anybody can make a decision at any level of the hierarchy but it has to be validated by two people with a different perspective, not known to the originator. So there's all sorts of ways that you can start to improve this, but it requires a radical rethink from the that, current you know, contain and attack type strategy. You see. That sounds not dissimilar to your formalized ritual descent practice. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a variation on that. We use trios a lot. Um, I mean, one of the big things where we're doing self-nudging in the valleys, and this is called transgenerational pairing, 
is we got people, you know, young people under 18, who we would train in the software, which we were using to do the distributed ethnography. Um, they could be trained, but only if they came along with somebody from their grandparents' generation. Mm -hmm. And they worked with that person to come up with novel ideas. If the ideas were interesting, they got put into a trio with somebody from government who can make the idea work. And that's kind of like the sort of thing we're increasingly doing to change communities. So you don't get into the right situation. And you know, yeah, young people are highly original and highly active. Yeah. And there's a thing called, the, I call it the grandparent syndrome. Grandparents actually have better communication with grandchildren than the parents do. So you use that connectivity. Is, is there an analogy for that in a corporate environment? I, I find that really interesting. That oh, yeah, that there once, is. You, yeah. you, you put new, new joiners together with people about to retire. And, I mean, this actually goes in with neuroplasticity because um, by the time you're in your early 20s, your brain locks down. It doesn't open up again until sort of 45, 50. It's chemically triggered male and female alike. Mm -hmm. And you can see that, the, the logic of that in evolution because... You know, from puberty, you, you've had a long learning period, right? You better damn start to focus. Mm. So, for example, you don't see racial prejudice until post-puberty. Um, because what happens after puberty is the brain starts to lock down based on the prejudices of the people around you. If you survive into your 40s or 50s in a hunter-gatherer community, you've obviously got had a lot of wisdom or luck. But you can't lead the tribe anymore, so you move into teaching and child care and wisdom management, right? And, yeah, we're just reflecting that. Um, it doesn't work if you have somebody who's the next one in the chain to you to mentor because there's a degree of threat in that relationship, whereas there's no threat with somebody much younger. Before we leave prejudices and biases and military history and battlefields, Dave, is mm. there a problem particularly with conventional military thinking and a focus on doctrine and military history and the <laughs> things that have been, overanalyzing those things that have been? Is there a problem with that and the lens through which, therefore, we're looking at these really challenging, complex problems? Yes, there is. I mean, Gary Klein, who's well worth reading in this area, it's famously said there's no such thing as cognitive bias. There are just cognitive heuristics. So evolution doesn't throw out things which have no utility. Um, so actually, the so-called cognitive biases are actually energy-efficient devices for the species. Yeah? Um, the trouble is, when you're in the tail of a distribution, kind of like they can be dangerous, like inattentional blindness. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Now, I think um, it's quite interesting. I, I tried to get a project funded in the States, but I think I, I named it wrongly. So I called it Patton's Brain. <laughs> uh, I discovered that, you know, using an army general in the Marines is not a good idea. They sort of marched me down to the entry to what they call the Death Star, where there are five Marine generals and said, choose one of these instead. Right. <laughs> um, Who'd you Patton go with? Patton's interesting. I, I mean, Patton was probably the most successful Allied commander in the Second World War. I'm infinitely more successful than Montgomery. I think all the retrospectives now say if he'd been given the petrol rather than Montgomery for Market Garden, the war would have been over a year earlier. Yeah. Um, but he was a madman. <laughs> so he thought he was the reincarnation of generals from the past. So he was fanatical about military history. 
And when he got into tanks in the Second World War, he learned how to strip and put together a Sherman tank because he said, I'm a cavalry commander, this is my horse. Yeah. So what he actually had is thousands and thousands of patterns and understanding at a tacit level, which other generals didn't have. So when he made the decision at the Bulge, which Montgomery refused to do the relief operation, it wasn't just a random act. It was kind of like based on that deep, Mm. ability to do what in cognitive terms is called conceptual blending. So I think the the issue here is, and this is one of my stories, so I got thrown out of the Pentagon once. Well, I wasn't thrown out, but it was indicated I should leave, right? <laughs> um, and kind of like, you know, given you know, given the size of the bloody place and the guns, you could do what you're told, right? There was no option um, to stay. Yeah, I basically said they had the best method I knew for knowledge capture. I mean, the Army Lessons Learned Unit was gathering stories in the field, but then Tradoc was synthesizing them into doctrine. Mm. And I said, that won't work, right? Either way, a few years later, I got a phone call from General Sorensen, who's the three-star in charge of IT for the Army. And this is why I like American generals. He said, you were right, we were wrong, come in and talk. Yeah? Because he said the only thing which worked in Iraq was platoon commanders blogging. Nobody paid attention to doctrine. Mm. And what we then did in the experimental project with West Point was to get company commanders to actually keep field narrative diaries, uh, which meant we had real-time data coming in as opposed to end-of-patrol reports. Yeah? So that improved decision-making. Yeah? But also what it gave us is what's called narrative-enhanced doctrine. So the ability to take a 20-page doctrine manual, reduce it to one page with hyperlinks to stories from real people and with a two-way feed. Yeah. So I, I think the issue is not the study and not the analysis that's needed and not the training, which is far more effective in military environments than industry. Yeah. Mm. Um, it's actually about how the material is stored and how it's accessed where, where you get into the problem. Yeah. And as I say, narrative-enhanced doctrine is one of the methods we developed for that. So in military schools the world over, no one's encouraged for risk-taking. Everyone wants to see a very doctrinal solution and therefore we mm. don't tend to innovate. And the problem that you've identified Dave, is that the innovation has to happen when we're out on operations on the battlefield. How can we overcome that in in the thinking that we apply, not just in militaries, but in law enforcement and and the corporate world as well? I think also the training. I mean, one of the things we developed with the Singapore military, who are very experimental, this was Klein and I did this together, is a technique called anthro-simulation in which you put people into a human-mediated war game, not Mm -hmm. machine-mediated. Human beings are far more malicious as game managers, in which you have three teams working in parallel and everything they do results in failure. You go through three rounds of failure. And it needs to be teams in parallel so they don't take it personally. They realize everybody's in the same boat. By the end of that process, you've got people scanning about 30 times more data um, than at the start of the process. If they succeed, they scan less. But then we continuously capture narrative throughout the exercise, which becomes an evidence base for decision-making in practice later on. Because the issue around doctrine is evidence. It's not about, compl- it's not about compliance. 
So starting to create effectively databases which give an evidence base for risk-taking, I think is one of the key actions. And linking that in with that type of training is key. Uh, but you can see that I grew up on Star Trek from designing <laughs> military exercises where failure is the only option. Yeah. Now, breaking the mould, a question for Dave, you and Ben. Um, you know, David, you've, you've assisted armies all around the world, including ours, think through complexity and, and maybe reprogram ourselves to the way that we approach it. You came out here to Australia and helped our special operations community and you and Ben were just talking before we came on air. You talked about how wholesome the conversation was with the community here and Ben, mm. you talked about how valuable it was. So maybe a question to Ben and then David after, what did it change in terms of the unit's thinking towards difficult, challenging environments and problems? I think right up front it changed um, the same thing that uh, I think any audience who hears Kinevan for the first time gets, and that is uh, the, the recognition that there are different approaches in different kind of environments. And so that diagnostic bit about, okay, I've got a weapon stoppage, this is a very simple procedure, easy, you know, um, best practice, um, I've got... Uh, and in some of our tactical and planning activities, it is more complicated. You know, there are it's that domain of surgeons where, you know, there are different ways, but it is still a soluble mechanical problem. But really critically for us, it was looking at that complexity and the idea that these are probably, as David said before, intractable problems that you can't win. And that um, these ideas of as soon as you interact with the environment, it changes. So that whole situation that you just spent 24 hours without sleep planning against, the second you cross the line of departure, you've gone and changed the environment that you've just planned against. So you better not think that your your plan's going to work perfectly. So that at a tactical level was absolutely invaluable. You can see the pin drop whenever anyone sort of first hears about Kinevan in, in that sort of sense. But also at the strategic and as we looked at our interaction with our own side, you know, the, the way that uh, the military was being used, um, the, our interactions with government and the strategic intent behind this, which may not necessarily cascade neatly to what we thought our military intent on the ground was, I think it helped make sense of this a lot more for us than uh, I think our previous sort of probably more more linear approach had. And so that's talking purpose, Ben, and empowerment and decentralisation. And Dave, would that be your position? Those three things are crucial to, to navigate? I think they're important. I mean, I was impressed by the amount of poetry in the bookshelves in the officer's mess, right? <laughs> no, I was genuinely impressed because actually we know that aesthetics is key to innovation. Um, art comes before language and human evolution. But I think one of the interesting things, if you do can have him work in the way I do it, certainly, is you're leaving things that people then get benefit from. I think it's one of the reasons why big consultancies don't like don't like complexity. Mm. Um, and I remember I taught leadership with Peter Drucker, and you know, after I'd been totally humiliated on a stage by him, never criticised <laughs> Frederick Taylor, the 94-year-old genius, I ended up as a puddle of humiliation. Uh, but he decided I was retrieved and took me out for dinner and then I ran leadership courses with him and I remember one day in public it was kind of like semi-rehearsed I said what's the role of a consultant a consultant he said it's to be a butterfly or a bee you're there to pollinate not to do the work for the company hmm. and I think what you now see is consultants who actually want to do that work 
um, and managers who want to employ them to do it. So it's not their fault if it goes wrong. So I think what you see, if you genuinely get complexity-based consultancy, you're there as the bee to pollinate the ideas. And then you find out years later how much effect it had. You don't necessarily see it yourself. Have we ignored the chaotic? Has COVID-19 proven that organizations perhaps gave a lot of attention to complicated environments, a little less to complex? There's a a current phrase for COVID, which is it was a black elephant. Yeah. Yeah. Not a black swan. Which is a combination of a black swan and the elephant in the room. Um, I actually think that's unfair because I think uh, though we knew a pandemic was possible, I mean, there are levels of total stupidity, like diverting the um, contingency funding from um, pandemic preparation to Brexit, which happened in the UK. Mm. And I hope some people actually get prosecuted over that because I think that was criminal. Mm. But to actually have everything ready for a pandemic when the probability of a pandemic is low, it's a tail event, it's not a central Mm. distribution event. There are thousands of things which could have happened, right? There there are always multiple things. The issue is how do you respond when they happen, yeah? And avoiding retrospective coherence, I think, is vital there. So if you look at the basic structure, and I'm writing this handbook for the EU at the moment on crisis management, all right? And they adopted Kinevin last year, which is somewhat ironic given the stupidity of the English in leaving. I'm making sure this is the English, not the Welsh or the Scots. Um, Is that um, you you make decisions very fast. If you hit a crisis, your job is to impose rapid constraints to keep your options open. And probably the best example of that in um, COVID is the New Zealand Prime Minister who did lockdown before it was proven it was needed. And that's a good example of draconian imposition of constraints to maximise your options. The British did it so late that our death rate now exceeds that of all the other European countries combined, which is a disgrace if you think about it. Mm. But after that, your role is to coordinate, not decide. You distribute decision-making, you centralise coordination. So chaos is a space that you get out of quickly through the imposition of constraints. That makes it apparatic. the aware section of confused. But then you dip back into it for what's called um, mass sense or human sensor networks. Mm -hmm. So that's where you get, say, your whole workforce to assess a situation in real time, maybe in 10 minutes. Um, And we we actually develop software for this, which means you can actually see the dominant patterns, the minority patterns, but you can also see the outlier groups, the people who have seen something that other people haven't seen. Yeah? Now that's actually deliberately using chaos because this is wisdom of crowds. None of the agents involved can have any communication with any other agents. So you're deliberately introducing randomness um, to get a statistically accurate solution. So chaos is both negative, get the hell out of it with constraints and positive, um, you know, remove all the constraints so that you can see novel patterns. But the latter takes a huge amount of energy because it's not a natural state for humans. David, you spoke a little before about uh, the power of the narrative. And I think in our previous conversation way back when you you spoke about this idea of um, humans maybe better named as, as homo narens, the sort of storytelling yeah. ape. Um, can you talk to us about the importance of narrative, and you've mentioned before, in particular, the day-to-day narrative, not the grand stories, but the real anecdotal sort of stories? 
Yeah, I'd add to Homo narans, Homo ludens, and Homo faber. Yeah, they're all more important than Homo sapiens. Yeah, we're jokers and tool makers and <laughs> storytellers. Um, I think the key thing is, and there, there's a big distinction lots of people are making at the moment between big big data and thick data. Yeah. So big data is the the, the massive volume data analytics, and that's been heavily challenged. So, for example, epidemiologists are challenging people like Talib with just because you've got a lot of mathematical ability and data modeling, it doesn't mean you can replace epidemiology where we understand the principles of these bloody models. Yeah? Mm. Um, but big data has value. You're now seeing anthropologists and ethnographers fighting for thick data, which is you know high levels of meaning, but it takes a long period of time, and it's actually subject to bias by the ethnographer. Um, and if you look at it, they actually say they can't use anecdotal data. They have to use prompted narrative because they're trying to extract meaning. Our approach, which I famously called rich data because big, thick and rich seemed to go with Trump's actions at the time when I was writing the blog post. All right. And that's on our website is where you allow people to self-interpret their own anecdotal material because the anecdotal material is where real meaning is happening. Um, and because they self-interpret, this is also called epistemic justice, because the right of interpretation is where ethics stands, not the right to tell a story. And so that allows me to scale at volume, and that's what we do with things like mass sense and, and mapping and dispositional states. It also links in with some key work I did with Max Guasso, um, who tragically died in 2011, the same way as Paul Killiers, two of my main mentors. Hmm where we identified narrative as a halfway house between tacit and explicit knowledge. So the person with deep tacit knowledge, the London taxi driver, the intuitive guy, um, people will listen to their stories, which is one of the main mechanisms for tacit knowledge transfer. As the stories coalesce, they can be written into documents, but then narrative hands document puts stories onto documents, which makes them more meaningful. And the more you acquire on that, then you get tacit knowledge. So famous quote of Polanyi, which I adapted, we always know more than we can say. And I added to that, we can always say more than we can write down. So you've got three types of knowledge you have to manage. Um, the sort of deeply tacit intuitive knowledge, the um, highly explicit structured codified knowledge, and then narrative, which allows you to link and connect those and which is cheaper and faster to collect. But, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's important that the individuals who own the narrative are the ones who are collecting it or interpreting yeah. it? Yeah, and that's vital because what, what actually happens is they don't interpret the narrative, they add layers of meaning to it. Um, and that's actually really important. And it's also quant, not qual. I mean, this is my background, which was physics and philosophy as a joint honours. <laughs> Um, which meant I'd learned to have a contempt for social sciences for two disciplines, which I'm trying to overcome at the moment, right? <laughs> so from a from the point of view of physics, no social scientist ever has enough data to form any valid conclusion. And the point of view of philosopher is a social scientist is somebody who didn't have the brains to handle philosophy, but that's a bit more derogatory, right? Um, the reality is if you look at the way physics does research, mathematics is then checked through practice. And so the approach we adopted some years ago is to take natural science, which is subject to empirical checks and repeatable experiments and peer review in a way that social science isn't. And then effectively use theory to construct methods and tools. 
and then see in practice what worked or didn't to validate the theory. And mm. that to me is a sort of key switch which we and other people made. And that's kind of like the extension of Kinevian in complexity. And so if we look at the ways of harnessing a narrative, um, particularly at the moment, there's a lot of talk about resilience and we're facing uh, a lot of challenging social and you know pandemic related issues. How might we use a narrative to to help increase either individual or, or collective resilience in this environment? Now, you wouldn't use a narrative. You would actually use collections of anecdotes. So there's a thing called vector theory of change, which I've written on, which is you achieve change by saying, I need more anecdotes like these and fewer anecdotes like those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we've done work on this. We're doing work on diabetes, for example, diabetes to reversal where encountering anecdotes of people who've succeeded or failed gives you these continuous small micro nudges. But also one of the big projects we've been doing on narcissistic control, um, which is running in Australia, Canada, and the UK, we found that people who've been subject to narcissistic control, which is really nasty, um, are more able to break out of it if they can see stories of people who've failed and stories of people who've succeeded, rather than if they're taught by experts. Um, And we saw the same in the West Point experience and the um, experience in Syria as well, um, is the ability to encounter stories of other people who survived and failed is actually a key part of resilience. And the brain assimilates narrative much faster than codified documents. And is this this part of that concept of nudging towards more stories like this, the success uh, stories and yeah, stories and, and observations. It's 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 the nudge principle that you move to where it's possible. You don't set over ambitious targets. Yeah, the adjacent. If you think of it, look at the classic marine heuristic. If the battlefield plan breaks down, you know, stay in touch, keep moving, capture the high ground. Hmm. Or Napoleon's famous one: If in doubt, march right to the, the sound of the, of the guns. guns. Yeah, what these do is they give you they they give you structures. I call it partly scaffolding. It gives you a structure which removes. It doesn't remove all uncertainty because that would make you highly vulnerable, but it removes enough uncertainty that you can actually act. David, can and it's also experience. I mean, I was I was walking at the weekend. All right, we can't walk in Wales. Um, there's roadblocks on the Welsh Bridge because Wales is sitting closed and England isn't. And I never thought I'd be excluded from my own country, but never mind. <laughs> that's the way it works. I always wanted roadblocks on the Severn Bridge, but I thought I'd be on the other side. <laughs> um, but it means I can walk in the mountains. So there's this one Brecon Beacons Valley. I mean, the whole of the mountains are in Wales, but there's one valley in England. So we're exploring it extensively. You know, walking up to the boundary and looking over the promised land and then coming back down. Right? <laughs> now, I remember coming uh, that, that particular valley, I've come down in the pitch dark without a torch. Um, because I had a group of people with me who hadn't walked before. I underestimated their skill. I didn't dare come down an early route because it was going to be too difficult for them. So I went on to a broader route, which was safer, and made the judgment it was better to come down a really good track in the dark than a really bad track in the twilight. And it was the right decision, all right? And I wasn't remotely stressed throughout the whole process, and I managed to calm them down because I was calm. But that was only because I'd done it a 100 times. Yeah, and I had the experience and I knew intuitively what to do and how to respond. And we underestimate experience in training. Yeah, it's, it's not good enough just to be taught it. You have to actually experience it. Hmm. Just COVID-19 again. Scorecard with a Kinevan framework overlay. Who got it right? 
the economists or the doctors? It depends what you consider right, right? We still don't know the answer to that. I mean, one of the techniques we developed is called the trioptican. And so we would have used that if I'd been in the cabinet office, and, you know, the behavioral economists, the um, epidemiologists, and the economists, yeah, in a highly structured competitive environment over a day with multiple semi-amateur observers also interacting with them because you don't know which group of experts are right. Yeah? And as a decision maker, you have to see the sort of patterns in that. Um, and so, you know, what you've got at the very callous thing, the herd immunity strategy of Sweden, de facto the UK and the US, is the economy's, you know, more important. If we kill off a lot, lot of old people, so what? It's less important. I mean, that's mm. really what they're saying. Yeah? So who's successful or not successful, the kind of like depends on what you think success, mm. success comprises. You, you mentioned before Trump and, and Boris Johnson. I mean, do you hold hope for, for Western democratic systems um, sort of recovering and, and developing great leaders who can, I guess, think in this complex framework rather than just answer the, the short-term mail, focus on the four-year electoral horizon or the, the next soundbite? Because um, if you look at the great leaders of the past, all right, and I wouldn't include Churchill in that because I'm Welsh, right? <laughs> We remember him for pointing guns at the miners in Tony Pandy, right? Um, but if you look at Disraeli, you look at Gladstone, you look at Lloyd George, you, you look at Roosevelt, I could go through a whole bunch of people, including some Australian leaders. They wouldn't survive press scrutiny these days. Yeah. Uh, what actually happens is anybody with any character isn't going to go into politics because, mm. you know, it, it, it rewards the bland and the anodyne. And, so and we've got a massive, and you know, we've got presidential style leaders rather than. I remember the first Wilson cabinet you know, in '64, where I think virtually everybody in there was a double first from Oxford and Cambridge, and mostly from working class backgrounds, and they fought like hell at cabinet meetings. And that's mm. what you actually want: you want diversity. So I think we've got to find. I, I actually think big nations don't work that well in crises. You need smaller nations, um, and you need bigger units. So. Finance and defence, Europe. Uh, culture, North England isn't the same as South England. Wales is different. Scotland is different. Cornwall is different. And so on, all right? And if you look around Europe, you'll see the medieval cultural groups are still the dominant ones. Yeah, Bavaria is not Prussia. The Languedoc is not Paris and so on. Hmm. And I think um, to our earlier Queen conversation... Queensland is not New South Wales or the Socialist Republic of Victoria. I mean, it's... Uh, <laughs> or, or the, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah, never mix those three. Yeah, the soon to secede Western... <laughs> wax it. West Australian <laughs> exit strategy. Um, but to, to come back to our, our very earlier discussion about, you know, one of the, I guess, the, the foundation principles of complexity is that you can't predict the future and so it makes it very difficult to um, get on an electoral platform and say this is how I'm going to describe this shiny sitting on the hill. Yeah and I think that that's what's not going to work and I think um, that the problem is the cycle time of elections is going to result in the planet becoming un uninhabitable. I mean literally right because there's no reward in long-term decisions. And I think that's what we've got to address. I mean, we're doing some work at the moment with people like Extinction Rebellion. Um, we're doing some work with activist groups. And I think Black Lives Matter is critical because it triggers a change. 
Um, and the concept of distributed policing is actually quite an interesting one if you really start to think about it and don't just have a, a reaction against it. Mm. Yeah. So I think what I'm hoping, right, because I used to worry about my grandchildren, then I started to worry about my children, then I started to worry about me, <laughs> um, is that and I'm 66 and I'm worried about global warming in my lifespan, right? Mm. Um, I think we need to rethink um, one man or one person, one vote evolved for much smaller populations and infinitely available resource. It didn't evolve for our current conditions. So we are going to have to rethink what democracy is. On that lofty note, it's probably a good way to wrap up our, our conversation. David, thank you very much for your time. It's okay. always a, a sort of real highlight for me to, to touch base with you. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks, cool. Dave. Okay. Now to the debrief. We strive for continuous improvement and greatly appreciate your insights and feedback. Also, if you know someone who is living that life less ordinary, please tell us. You can get in touch at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow and engage with us on social media. Just search for Unforgiving 60 on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Until next episode, keep filling your unforgiving minutes with 60 seconds worth of distance run. See you next time on the Unforgiving 60. Oh, I-